from the Gettysburgian and 91.1 WZBT Gettysburg. I'm Ben Ponce, and this is On Target. Today on Target, first, we'll wrap up the Senate Committee on Greek Life's report and discuss the paths forward. Then we'll have an interview with Gettysburg College football coach Kevin Burke. Stay with us. We are here recording a podcast in Gettysburg on the 1st of July. Not as if anything momentous has ever happened on the 1st of July. I'm now being told it's the 2nd of July. Not as if anything momentous in Gettysburg has ever happened on the 2nd of July either. Uh, the news uh, is basically one event. The Senate Committee on Greek Life in the past nine weeks and three days has invented paper... <laughs> realized that they needed a writing system so hieroglyphics wasn't going to cut it so they developed an alphabet developed the entire english language decided that words mean things applied meaning to the said words and then told us what they discovered while conducting a grand total of 23 interviews over the course of more than 90 days a task that evidently was earth-shattering because they were able to tell us several things about Greek life that nobody knew, such as some people are involved in it, some people aren't, and some people are sad about it when they are, and some people are sad about it when they aren't. No, actually what they did is finally manage to write a report that was due more than 55 days ago and tell the campus about it. And once they told the campus about it, we realized they didn't really learn a whole lot that was new. Okay, well, uh, now that we've got that off our chests. Gary, what were some of the findings of the Senate Committee on Greek Life's report? Uh, that we should be more inclusive, uh, specifically Greek organizations should be more inclusive to non-Greek organizations when it comes to mixers and philanthropic events, um, allowing, you know... Uh, non-Greek clubs to participate in them, things that have already been suggested in life, uh, talking about how it is too expensive to join Greek life clubs currently, uh, organizations currently, um, and that underage drinking, drugs, and uh, sometimes, you know, sexual assault in fraternity houses is a problem. Yeah, but funny enough, Gary, we actually didn't hear about sexual assault being a problem in fraternity houses because this report actually made no mention of sexual assault, apparently not thinking it's one of the issues that contributes to a social divide relating to Greek life. Thoughts? I was not shocked. Um, we've talked about this before. Uh, I think that Scoggle, um, as they've been called in the past, is completely slanted towards Greek life. Um, you know, we, we did lose a member during the year. It was supposed to be a five, five, uh, Greek affiliated versus not Greek affiliated. Just let me interrupt you for one moment to say, when you say we lost a member, they didn't <laughs> die. They resigned. Yes, they resigned. <laughs> uh, we lost, uh, one, uh, not affiliated member. However, um, two, I believe two of the non-affiliated members just happened to be first years. Um, and in Gettysburg speak, that doesn't really mean a whole lot because no first year can be involved in Greek life unless they underground rush. 
So just because they're not affiliated now doesn't mean that they're not rushing next year. Um, beyond that, you know, I think that it's really important to understand that just because someone's not affiliated with letters, that they're not a, a brother or a sister somewhere, doesn't mean that they don't participate in Greek events, doesn't mean that they're not going to frat parties. And I think that it's very hard to find a group of people that is not in some way favoring Greek life on this campus, because as they do point out in the document, um, you know, Greek parties happen to be one of the only social events happening on campus. It is more likely than not that if you are involved in the social sphere on campus, that you participate in Greek life in some way. Um, because of that and because of the slant to uh, pro-Greek life, um, I don't... I. I would be shocked. How many interviews did you say they conducted? They conducted uh, nine interviews with students that are affiliated with Greek organizations, nine with students that are not, and then five interviews with faculty or administrators that have some or no affiliation or relationship to Greek life. Okay, so in 23 interviews, I don't think it's possible that sexual assault was never brought up. Or if it didn't come up, they did not interview a very representative group, considering that there is an entire organization on campus called Students Against Sexual Assault, whose primary focus is on, uh, well, sexual assault, particularly in Greek life. And, you know, just from our standpoint, a lot of the things that we report about Greek life on campus happened to be cases of sexual assault coming yeah, to Yeah, there light. was, in fact, a pretty big lawsuit that happened alleging, uh, you know, that uh, rape occurred in a fraternity house and the college did nothing about it. Uh, and that lawsuit is still pending. And frankly, I don't know that it has a lot of uh, strength on the merits legally. Uh, but in any case, uh, that the notion of sexual assault did not come up one time uh, or if it did, that it was ignored and not included in the report uh, is something that when I read it, I then read it a second time to make sure I didn't miss it. And when I finished reading it a second time, I read it a third time. And after the third time, I asked someone else who read it a second time. And when none of us found it, we did a control yep. F search <laughs> yep. for sexual or assault, didn't find it. And then we're pretty alarmed. Uh, I mean, the campus climate study that was conducted several years ago cites, I believe, 24 examples of people. I mean, these are people who, first of all, were in the group that participated in the campus climate study, which is not everyone. People who, while participating in it, ad admitted or testified, whatever the word you want to be, reported that they had been victims of unwanted sexual contact and then, on top of that, explicitly in an open-ended section, it was not a checkbox, in an open-ended section. You know, how many people, when you fill out a survey, actually fill out narrative information in open-ended sections? 24 people said that they were sexually assaulted in a Greek house. And considering the only Greek houses that exist are frat houses, officially, that's 24 people who said they were, you know, victims of sexual assault in a fraternity house, and then Student Senate commissions a committee that is charged to study the issues mm -hmm. of Greek life and to produce a report that explains the social divides on campus. And when that report doesn't make mention of the fact that people are victims of life-altering crimes on campus, what are they doing in this report? 
other than regurgitating tired tropes of information that we already know, such as that there is a feeling of exclusivity. Now, I do want to give some credit to the chapter president of Sigma Chi, Hi Garst, who apparently was not consulted during the interview because at least if he was, he didn't tell them this or it didn't make the report. But I asked him his thoughts on the report and I wanna read the entirety of what he said because it is frankly the most honest um, assessment of the reality of the situation that a member of Greek life has said on the record. So here it goes. He says, as far as my general reactions, it is clear that there is frustration from the committee with Greek Life as an exclusive organization made up of dues-paying members. The reality is that we are exclusive. We don't have to explain why we hand out bids and not everyone meets our standard for membership. We pay dues so that we can support the work we do from membership development to mental health that is available to all students, to a, passionate to a network of passionate brothers who care about us. I'm okay with this. And I appreciate the time and information I was given during rush week to think about if I was willing to join, to attempt to join an organization that demanded secrecy and financial contributions. I was, but of course it's not for everyone and I'd hope that any Greek member would agree with me. I think this committee fails to recognize that there is so much more to a Greek organization than just the social aspect. It focuses on our failure to have diverse events with other organizations. My hope, is that the Theta chapter of Sigma Chi will remain open to partnering with different organizations for events and socials as we have done in the past. Greek organizations, however, are so much more than just a group that hosts social functions, social functions or opportunities for philanthropic service. In Sigma Chi, we divide the fraternity into three parts, a secret ritual that binds us together and makes us feel as if we are part of a greater organization which is called to more than is expected of others, an intimate brotherhood which unites us to each other and connects us to, in our case, one of the largest Greek communities in the world. Finally, the club aspect, which allows us to interact with the greater campus community through these social and philanthropic events. I feel that continuing the committee without a close connection to IFC, referring to the Interfraternity Council, or the Panhellenic Council, would neglect the reality that this Greek system is built on a secrecy that we value, and it would fail to paint a holistic and positive picture of Greek life. I then asked as a follow-up, do you believe that the exclusivity that he refers to contributes to the social divide on campus that this Scoggle report is predicated on explicating? And if so, whether he, hi, believes that that is problematic or merely a function of the system. He says, I think that if the social divide existed because of the Greek system, then there would be a similar divide on every campus with a strong Greek presence. That's not the case, so no, I don't think it's a function of the system. The social divide at Gettysburg is, in my opinion, the fault of everyone. The Greek members, the independents, and the college administration. I think the school could address the problem in a few ways that involves taking some of the pressure to provide social functions for all of the campus off of fraternities and changing the recruitment and rush processes for Greek organizations. My hope is that IFC and Panhellenic can provide mediums where Greeks, independents, and school administrators can work together, can work on a level playing field to directly address the problems with the social structure of campus, especially if there is a significant constituency on campus who feels that a severe problem exists. The fact that there are people on campus who feel that a social divide exists is inherently a problem. 
And I would like it to be fixed because I want all of my fellow students to be comfortable being involved with our chapter through philanthropic participation, social functions, and community service events. They also deserve to feel comfortable on campus and for there to be options for social functions and greater campus involvement outside of those offered by Greek organizations. So, I mean, that is a rather candid assessment mm -hmm. from the perspective of the president of one of the larger uh, fraternities on campus of the reality of the situation. That perspective was not included in the Scoggle report. Um, and, you know, I, I think that certainly my little ranting a moment ago aside, this is an important issue that is worthy of conversation, particularly, I think, at a time when there's a new president. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's a good time to revisit all kinds of things that we do and have done for a long time. Um, it is certainly the case that there's a perception, and in this particular circumstance, I think perception is reality, it is certainly the case that there is a perception that Greek life, and particularly fraternities and fraternity houses, have a monopoly on social activities at Gettysburg College. And just to kind of explicate that in two ways, one, uh, that shouldn't be the case both for the sake of the fraternities, whose financial contributions underwrite that. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily fair to ask people to to bankroll social functions for the entirety of campus. Mm -hmm. um, although if that's the way the system is set up, okay. It's also not good for people who um, are not part of those organizations, but who want to participate in a social climate that may include parties with alcohol. Um, and there's been conversation as to whether um, you know, college houses or other um, entities on campus have, you know, should have access to the ability to plan and host these parties with the same frequency and on the same scale as Greek organizations. Some Greek folks that I've talked to in, in more informal settings um, that I'm not going to quote have said that you know, it's it, it's a financial picture. No one else is going to pay the same way that Greek organizations do to host these events in terms of, you know, when a Greek organization hosts an event, they pay for the security uh, outside uh, that comes from a private security agency, G-Force. Uh, they pay for the insurance, which is not insignificant, to mm -hmm. be sure. Uh, and, and, of course, they pay for what is served. And, and, you know, to some extent, there are some times when others make financial contributions. But by and large, that burden is falling on the fraternities. And so this is not a sob story for the fraternities, <laughs> to be sure, as they are, to the point of this report, among the most socioeconomically exclusive organizations on mm -hmm. campus. And frankly, I don't think the college would accept that from any other type of organization. But that's kind of the reality of where we are. And I think that Certainly, now is as good a time as any to take a candid assessment, a, a deep look at whether that is a healthy social climate on campus. And, you know, it's not as if Gettysburg College is is terribly unique in facing this situation. There are other liberal arts institutions in the Northeast. Bowdoin College up in Maine uh, was once a Greek 
heavy system and got rid of fraternities. And I was speaking with someone last week who has a friend at Bowdoin who says that parties still happen. They're hosted in what I think we would call the equivalent of college houses by co-ed groups. There are no power dynamics at play where the frats own the houses and that sets up a, a, a system that exploits mm-hmm. uh, you know, women or whoever else. Uh, that, you know, it's it's on neutral turf, so to say. Uh, it, it's regulated through processes that everyone understands. And, and so, you know, is that something where um, we as a college should look at a model like that? Perhaps. I mean, I also think what's interesting is that uh, the Greek system is wholly predicated on gender in a way that, once again, outside of athletics... Uh, there is not another pocket of campus Mm-mm. that that would be acceptable from. And and so, you know, I'm not going to say that, you know, that's archaic or whatever else. I mean, I think personally, I think there is value, not necessarily in the Greek context, but just in general, I think there is value to single gendered social organizations providing a space among many where certain types of interactions and conversations happen uh, and, and where, you know, call it brotherhood or whatever you will, can develop. I mean, I don't necessarily object to that. I think there's a place for that. I think it's an open question as to whether the place for that is a system in which those brotherhood organizations have the real estate, host the events, are held responsible when something goes wrong at the events, whether or not it was one of their members. But on the other hand have set up a system where there are inherent um, inherent power disparities at play. Yeah, I think I think going back to like talking about gender dynamics and also like power dynamics, there's there's so many cases of it on our campus that people just readily are able to pull up that weren't in this report. There are so and I understand that they didn't want to quote and they wanted to keep anonymity um, key in this report. But there's so many things that any student that knows a lick about Greek life on campus can source there. Um, I don't think that ratios were talked about at all or enough. Um, the dynamics, I'll explain. Yeah. So ratios um, are the idea that if a group of um, people go up to a fraternity to get in and there's a certain amount of men in the group versus women um people will not be let in because there's too many guys or only the women will be let in or they'll test the men to get in. I know, you know, I'll say it openly. I've gone to fraternity parties. Uh, I went up, I had one of my uh, female friends and one of my male friends. Um, Me and my female friend were able to get in no problem. My male friend was asked if he could guess what the brother's name was. He gave him the first letter of his name and he had to guess what the name was. He got in, but that that's something that happens. People are tested the entire time. And there's certain ways in which people are tested in fraternities that I think make sense. I think the idea that, you know, they give them a word to spell to ask them for their next drink. That makes sense to me. I understand the point of sober monitoring and things like that. But to get into the house, um, the way that people are quizzed is completely based on gender. Uh, beyond that, you know, we see men being allowed into the fraternities, but they're kicked out pretty soon after they enter, um, whereas women aren't. We see that it's easier for women to get drinks than men, which makes no sense. 
Um, we see a fraternity, Sigma Alpha Epsilon, SAE, is literally nicknamed sexual assault expected. And that is something that I was first taught my first week on campus. We can't say that there's not a cultural uh, uh, cultural dynamic of sexual assault, uh, of rape culture, of, of gender-based um, power dynamics in Greek life when when we have a nickname like that, that everyone knows, that is and, not and, unknown. And just before anyone gets on a high horse saying it doesn't happen in the past year, crime logs from the Department of Public Safety that are public indicate that a rape happened at the, at the house. And, and so if, and, and that's one that was reported immediately in the aftermath, which is how that gets put in the crime log. Statistics show that most don't get reported immediately in the aftermath, that a whole bunch of, you know, even when a, a timely warning goes out, it, it says it's in an on-campus residential facility, uh, you know, and so the idea that, that just before some high and mighty, yep. there's evidence that this has happened that, you know, you can say whether or not it justifies the nickname, but the nickname's out there and the raping is out there. Yeah, and beyond that, think about the statistics of people who don't report or wait. We see in the crime log all the time, people report things a year or two after they happen. I, I've heard cases of my own friends that they won't report until they hear something else uh, when an offender has repeated something, then they feel the need to report, but for themselves, they don't. So we see all those cases happening worldwide. Um, and just to, you know, put it out there, it is not the job of the person who was raped or who was assaulted to report it is the job of the person who assaulted or raped to have not raped or assaulted in the first place. I'll just put that out there. Um, but beyond all that, I think that it's really dangerous for a group that is uh, of students in it who is meant to represent uh, the students to say that they have the the know-how and that they have the responsibility to be reporting on the true and honest take of what the issues with Greek life are and then to not include that, to not really, they made it into this very, like even their conclusion and what they suggested, it was very like, we need to have surveys and we need to talk about things. And we need to think about being more inclusive rather than change. It was more about making sure that everyone feels included, which is not the main issue with Greek life, in my opinion. It isn't about, oh, I can't participate in Anchor Splash and dance on stage. That's not the issue here. People who don't want to participate in Greek life aren't crying about not being able to participate in Greek life. It is about the things that are happening on campus that, like you said, are changing people's lives for the worse that are not included in here. We're not talking about people getting super drunk and uh, crashing cars. We're not talking about people. Happened. Happened. We're not talking about people having to get transported for drinking too much or overdosing on drugs. Happens almost every weekend. We're just talking about, oh, I, I can't participate in the philanthropy event because I don't have letters. That's not the problem here. And people saying that that people in Senate that have been elected or chosen for these positions that have spent whatever amount of time interviewing people and then are putting out this, what, two-page report with so a... The total report is 14 pages, but each section is a yeah. page or two. Yeah, putting out this report out here uh, that are saying, you know, we we just need to fix these things so that we're more inclusive is a slap in the face to every single person that has been truly negatively affected by the issues of not just Greek life, but just cases of underage students um, in America doing crap that they have no business doing. Yeah, 
and I mean, I don't want to belabor the point too much, although the fact that it wasn't mentioned is in and of itself worth belaboring. But if you were to ask 100 students on campus, were you or has someone you known been sexually assaulted in a fraternity house? I'd bet you'd get at least 50 yeses. Absolutely. Out of and I'd be, frankly, 50 is a low estimate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the idea that a report that's explaining the social climate on campus doesn't mention that issue, you know, I, I have been and will continue to be reporting on this. Uh, and so, you know, I am cognizant of, of maintaining some objectivity, but it is dumbfounding, jaw-dropping, and to take off my reporter hat and put on my student hat, unconscionable that that wasn't an issue mentioned. And of course, we haven't even scratched the surface of the myriad other uh, you know, issues that were either given lip service mm-hmm. or not even such as you know, diversity and inclusion in terms of membership. Uh, you know, the quote that I read earlier from High Garst at least addresses the socioeconomic exclusivity, but the idea that that you know being members of these organizations is a multi-thousand-dollar commitment uh, is something that in a campus that wants to be more socioeconomically inclusive, if participating as a full member of the social experience requires that. That's not exactly what I would call socioeconomically inclusive. Uh, And so all of this is to say that if Scoggle, some future iteration thereof, or Student Senate, I commend them for it. But this issue... For the most part, we're not talking about continuing the conversation. We're talking about starting a conversation as the issues raised in this report seem not to be those that many on campus would tell you are what contributes to a social divide between Greek and non-Greek students. In the days since it's come out, I've spoken with a number of people, including some closely related to the committee, who have told me in private that they're dumbfounded that that's what was put together. I think the the quote that says it all, and I'm not, you know, this wasn't a quote that I was given for attribution, but, you know, someone who has been involved with Senate for some time, I asked them what they thought of the report. Their response was, that's it. And that's it for our news segment. We'll be right back with the bullet report, followed by my interview with the new president of Gettysburg College. Stay with us. Over the summer, we don't exactly have a bullet report in the conventional sense, so instead we thought we'd sit down with the coach of the Gettysburg College football team, member of the class of 1990, entering his second season, Kevin Burke. Coach Burke, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Why don't we start here? You're entering year two. What did you learn from year one, and how are you kind of applying that to year two? Well, I think every day is a learning process, and I think we have to take the lessons that we learned from both 
uh, successes and failures and be able to apply them so you can move on and, and grow as a program. Um, I think what we're trying to do is establish an a environment where our players have the ability to maximize their potential academically and also maximize their potential athletically as well. What would you say some of those successes and failures were? Well, obviously, um, when you look at the overall record, that's not that's not what we wanted to accomplish last year. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of things you gain from from that. And there's a process. There are no shortcuts to success. And I think if I look at some of the successes, our spring last year was phenomenal. I mean, our kids did just a huge amount of work in the weight room. Their numbers were all up. We went to spring practice and, and really had a lot of effort, a lot of energy, a lot of enthusiasm. And I think one of the things that we did, both from a coaching staff and a player perspective, we really encouraged everyone to have some really honest self-reflection of the things that they think they do really well, the things they need to improve on, and what steps they can take to be uh, more competitive. And I think our guys really took that to heart. And, uh, you know, we just had a really positive spring. And so as you kind of transition into the fall, when, when the games begin, obviously coming off, as you alluded to, a one and nine season, how do you kind of, what do you, what would you say the keys on the field are to improving that record in the fall as if there's just, you know, one or two? Well, no, I mean, there, there were a lot of things that we did well. I mean, there were times we played some, some really good defense uh, last year. Um, but we need to improve in our passing game. There's no question about it. We need to, we need to improve in our, uh, production uh, of points, um, you know, no question about that. And I think if we do those two things and, and not turn the ball over, uh, we're going to be better. Um, you know, they, uh, probably you know this, the Centennial Conference is the best conference in the country right now. I mean, it's the only conference in the country that had five teams win eight or more games last year. Mm -hmm. It's the only conference in the country that had two teams advance as far as the national quarterfinals of the NCAA playoffs and one went to the NCAAs. So the great thing about our conference is when we get to the climb, when we climb to the top of the conference, we're going to be able to be competitive nationally as well. Uh, that's the long-term good thing. The short-term good thing is, man, it's it's a dogfight week in and week out, and you really got to be better. And that, that was the thing, too. Last year's football season, we actually got better as the year went on. Um, but, you know, our last four games were against playoff teams, and, and uh, you know, so it, it didn't necessarily show up on the scoreboard. And But we're, we're really focused on improving. We want to focus on improving every single day. Um, and we also want to focus not on thinking about winning and losing. Um, if we can do that and just focus on the process of getting better each day, the scoreboard results will eventually take care of themselves. What are some of the keys? I mean, you alluded to scoring more points. What are some of the who are some of the key players that it will help with that? And what kind of, you know, are you looking to do differently, perhaps, than last season on the offensive side? We'll get the ball in the end zone. I mean, that would be really different for us. No, I'm, no in all in all seriousness, I think, you know, we have a great mix of of older players and young young guys coming in. Mm -hmm. um, we had a, a good spring. We had certain players really step up. And it's, it's one of those things where I'm, I'm hesitant to talk about specifics of each individual because that's why we have preseason. Mm -hmm. You know, you have preseason, so you have guys that can compete uh, to determine who gets to represent the football team out there on Saturday afternoons or Saturday evenings or Friday evenings. Those are all the games that we have. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's going to be an interesting competitive battle um, for a lot of positions um, in the preseason, and we're really looking forward to it. What uh, you, you mentioned recruiting or, you know, new players coming in as you're recruiting at a division three school where obviously there are no, 
you know, athletic scholarship, so to say. What are some of the keys as you're recruiting that you tell people about coming to Gettysburg to play football? Well, I think it's, it's number one, they're not coming to Gettysburg to play football only. They're coming to Gettysburg to get a phenomenal education. And, and the way we recruit is we really give the selling points of the institution. And, and this is such an easy place to recruit for because um, you're going to get challenged every single day in the classroom. You're going to get challenged every single day on the athletic field. And, and, you know, if you're someone who likes to be challenged, you can really thrive in this environment. When you look at the value of a liberal arts education, really, you know, Gettysburg is a launching pad for future success. And, and it doesn't matter what you want to major in. And one of the things that I tell everyone that we recruit is if they come here and they play football for four years and they do well academically, employers and graduate school admissions councils are going to know three things about them right off the bat. Number one, they're going to have great time management skills. You can't, you can't be a, a student athlete for four years in a rigorous academic setting like this and not have great time management skills. Number two, they're going to have great oral and written communication skills. If you take a look at it with a nine to one student teacher ratio like we have, you're going to you're going to be forced to present things in class and those type of things. Mm -hmm. And number three, you're going to have great problem solving skills. Again, our professors do such a phenomenal job of making our student athletes look at things, not, not just student athletes, but all students look at things differently. So uh, if, if you have great problem solving skills and you are great oral and written communication skills and you have uh, great time management skills. What field aren't you going to be successful in? So that's what we really try to sell in the recruiting process. And then we sell the vision of where we're going with the program. We sell the fact that this Centennial Conference is so strong. We sell the fact that we have a, a burning desire to get back up to the forefront of the conference, that we want to get to a point where we're a consistent postseason participant. And I think guys are believing in that vision and they're coming to do that. But uh, ultimately, we sell the college. You know, we sell the college more than anything else. And so looking at that, uh, you know, a little more broadly at, at what you're talking about, what is the role of a football program on a liberal arts campus like Gettysburg? I mean, obviously, at, you know, Big Ten schools, there's revenue that comes in from certain athletic teams to support other athletic teams. That's probably not as much the case here. But what are and, and, and also you're not, you know, for the most part, developing players who are going to play professionally. So what would you say overall the role of a football program at Gettysburg or in a liberal arts campus? college in general might be? Well, again, if you look at it, obviously it, it certainly helps with male enrollment, um, number one, for the institution. And, and if you take a look around the Northeast, a lot of schools have really added football um, because they've been dealing with male enrollment issues. Now, that's not the case at Gettysburg, obviously. Gettysburg, we have we don't really have trouble filling our classes um, because we are such a good academic institution. But I think the role of football and really athletics, I mean, is we it's it's a point of pride. It's a it's a point of community spirit. It's 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 a point of um, just a way to get the college community together, alumni everything and it's and I think it's a phenomenal thing now football is a unique sport in that um, it's so ritualistic you know you have you know you know you just what you do on Monday is the same each 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 week of the offseason what you do on Tuesday is the same you know and you lead up to to the game on Saturdays uh, and it's just an amazing thing and and you know it's it's people love the sport of football for a variety of reasons um, but I think that's what it helps it helps make the campus more vibrant you know, and, and it's not it's not just football. It's the pageantry of the games. I mean, if you take a look at it, our band is phenomenal. I mean, our marching band just does such a phenomenal job. And if you haven't had an opportunity to do that, go out and watch their show at halftime. Like the only time I actually see the show is it's kind of funny because last year we and we're going to do it again this year. We 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 uh, as a team 
um, watch them when they put on their uh, sort of their performance before the season, so so we could actually see it because we never get to see it at halftime. But they're terrific. I mean, they're amazing, and and all those type of things I think really helps get the collegial atmosphere up. And you know, and it's the same with all the other sports as well too. I mean, one of the great things about Gettysburg is we really sell the fact that you can do so many things when you're here. And, and you know, for our student athletes in the athletic program, playing their sport is a very important component to their overall educational experience. And I think, I think we're an extension of that educational experience in athletics. Well, as a member of the marching band, glad to hear that. Uh, <laughs> I did not know you were a member of a marching band, so that's kind of nice. Not even a planted nice. question. But any, <laughs> in any case, you alluded to this a little bit, but one of the things that I know you talk about a lot on, on your social media accounts is the game day atmosphere. For someone who's never been, how would you kind of describe it? Well, again, I mean, it, it, it's really kind of cool. One, and, and I blame the band for this, by the way, we have one of the, one of the latest arriving crowds you're ever going to see, and it, it has to do with we have a... People are tailgating and doing all those other type of things. But then the band marches on right before we're done with warmups. And that's, that's sort of everyone's key to come into the stadium. So, uh, you know, we, we then go into our uh, locker room and we have our, our moment together as a team. And, and then when we come back out, all of a sudden there's a whole lot more people there than when we went, went in after warmups. And then the band forms a tunnel that we get to run through. And, and, and it's really kind of an exciting experience. And then you throw in the cheerleaders and everything else. And it's just a great, great environment. I mean, you put the the orange and blue flags go up on a stadium. Everybody knows there's a game. You know, we go over to the dining hall for our pregame meal, and everybody knows there's a game, and just all those type of things. It's important. And then, you know, our 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 parents group tries to do a great job for our players. You know, and and do a post game tailgate for them with food and those type of things mm -hmm. as well too. And and you know, it's just the whole experience. I mean, when when literally when you walk across, it's kind of a neat experience too, because when we walk from the Jager Center over to the stadium, you know, you go over and people have tents set up and all those other type of things. Right? Right. So it's it's really kind of cool. And the thing is when we can get the program to the point where we're winning on a consistent basis again, you know, that it's gonna be more packed. It's gonna be more right. that much more of an exciting atmosphere. And that's and that's what's tremendous. Well, I was going to ask, do you think that the key, you know, one of the things, there are a lot of people who come to these games. It seems, though, a lot of them are parents and, and alumni and, and, and fans. I hear less on campus, you know, just from the people who study and work here about, you know, going to football games. Is that something you'd like to build a culture of? And do you think the key to that is winning more games or are there other things that play into that? Well, I think I think there's that's a great question, by the way. But I, I think there's a lot of things that play into it. Uh, winning, obviously cures a lot of things. Um, it really does. People want to be a part of it. People want to see, you know, there's nothing quite like celebrating a championship and people want to be a part of that when they have that opportunity. But you got to go a long way to do it. And right. I, but I think one of the things that happens is this is such a vibrant campus and this is such a great thing for Gettysburg. There's a lot of things to do on this campus all right. the time. So our athletic events are just another portion of it. And I think we need to continue to do as an athletic department a, a better job of promoting our events of people knowing when they are mm -hmm. um, so they know they can come up. Now, football is a little bit easier just because, you know, Saturdays. it's Saturdays, <laughs> you know, but on the same token, I mean, it's, it's, it's right here on campus. It's a, it's a stone throw from a lot of the residence halls, you know, mm -hmm. why not come out to the games? And I think that's, that's really, really important. And I think, but I think we can do a better job. I think we could, we could continue to promote 
um, just the experience for the students themselves that, that are not athletes just coming out to the games, I think is really, really important. But the other thing when you look at, too, from a school this size, you know, when you're we're dealing, and I don't know exactly what the what the figure is, but when you're probably dealing with 25 to 30 percent of your student population are varsity athletes. Right. Um, they're they got their own deals they're dealing at that time too so so you so that does get taken away but i will say this you can definitely tell when we've played games over our mid-semester break you can tell the difference in the crowd so there's obviously a large portion of students there as well right um one thing i did want to ask about that's a little bit less related to some of what we've been talking about you mentioned earlier student athletes and you know student coming before athlete um there's you know a lot of academic or medical research about how, um, you know, concussions and, and in particular, but injuries in general affect football players. I'm just wondering at, you know, a, a college like Gettysburg, where you were talking about all the academic benefits, how do you kind of approach the risk of injury, the prevalence of injury and any, you know, negative long-term effects that come could come from playing football, particularly with something like concussions? Well, I think, you know, one of the things that has happened in, in, in this day and age, the research has, has been so much mm-hmm. and there's so much attention on concussions, uh, especially, but all football-related injuries as well, too, all sports-related injuries, that we have protocols set in place by our medical team mm-hmm. um, that are followed. Um, and I think that's that's one of the things that just needs to happen. Um, and I think as a coach, what's nice is we're actually removed from the medical decisions. You know, it's, it's the same thing from like a kid who's grown up playing a sport. I don't care what the sport is. If a coach asks you, hey, you're good to go, they're, they're trained from the time they're like eight years old to say, yeah, I'm ready to go. Well, uh-huh. that's why we have the trainers and our, our, our athletic trainers and our, our uh, uh, doctors to evaluate those situations because they, they'll make the determination on whether the, the individual can play or not. And I think especially our medical people, but and I shouldn't say especially, but our medical people and our coaching staff, without question, we have the long-term interests of our players at heart. Mm-hmm. But there is a risk factor when you play football. There's no denying that. You right. know, and if you take a look at one of our young men last year, Chase Fee, I mean, what a, what a phenomenal human being he is. And, and uh, you know, he wound up very unfortunate. I mean, he tore his ACL twice, you know, in his career here. And that's, you know, and, and he that, that young man has such a just a just – a positive attitude about it when each time it happened, but it is, there's, there's the risk that you take when you play any competitive sport, Um, you know, and some of the, some of the rates of concussions are higher in other sports than football, I believe. Don't quote me on that, but you know, um, but there is that, that, that's a, that's a, that's a decision. Um, when you decide to play athletics, when you decide to play a collision sport like football, those are things that are, inherent risks. Um, but you try to mitigate them as best you can. And one of the ways we mitigate them is how much contact we do in practice, you know, versus, um, you know, those type of things. And if you take a look at, uh, across the landscape of college football, I think there's a lot less contact now in practices where you're full taking guys to the ground and those type of things right. than there used to be. And I think those are great positive steps. And, you know, just to follow up on that quickly, as you you know, would counsel people about weighing those risks that you say come with playing, and it's not just football, but any sport. What makes you still say that the benefits that, you know, come to that person outweigh those risks when it comes to playing a division, you know, a collegiate sport? Well, I mean, there's, (laughs) I, you're asking great questions. And I think is, there's an, there's an intrinsic benefit to being involved in anything that that really makes you 
commit to trying to maximize your abilities? And I know this sounds like a like sort of a, a, a long-winded answer, I guess. But w- what happens is you get the camaraderie, you get the mm-hmm. collective experience with other other guys. You get so many things that you know from the time management skills to the putting you putting aside your own interest for the good of the team and all those different type of things that are really successful. And really, it's about relationships. Ultimately, athletic participation to me is about relationships. It's about the relationships that players that to form with other players. It's the relationship that players form with coaches. It's the relationship that they form with each other. Right. And putting aside um, um, sometimes what their own goals are for what the good of the good of the team goals are. And that's really, if you think about whether you get in the business world, whether you get into, uh, you know, law or medical field, whatever, you're going to always be asked to do those type of things. So I think there is, there, there's a, there's a certain amount of of benefit that comes with it, but there's also the, the great benefit of learning how to deal with, with extreme joy and extreme disappointment that goes along when you, when when you pour your heart into something. And it's like, I'm always really, and it's funny because you're, you're, you're in the band, but I'm, I am completely mesmerized by good musicians because I realize the amount of time it's taken them to get mm-hmm. to where they're at. Right. And it's amazing. Like when you, when you like Yo-Yo Ma, I mean, are you kidding me? I mean, I mean, it's unbelievable. Um, and, and, you know, those type of things. And I'm just, I'm mesmerized by that because somebody committed that much of themselves to it. And I think when you commit yourself to something, there's, there's nothing quite like it. And part of it is too, it's, 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 whether you're a football player, whether you're a basketball player, whether you're a cross-country runner, whatever it is, it becomes part of who you are. It doesn't become who you are, but it becomes part of who you are. And you just have a desire and a, and a, and a I don't know, almost a longing to do that for as, for as long as you can. But everybody makes choices. And, and, you know, I've told our guys, I think one of the biggest things in life to be successful is to create what your priorities are and figure out what your priorities are mm-hmm. and always sit back and reevaluate priorities. Your priorities at 18 may not be the same as what they are at 22, and they may not be the same as when you're 35 and may not be the same as when you're 42. So it's good to sit down every once in a while and just really sit down and say, what are my priorities? And I think athletic participation helps you do that to it. To, to a very large degree. And last question, what would you say on and off the field are your goals for the 2019 season? Well, again, I think, you know, our, our goal for our football programs, we want to pr- provide a beneficial and transformative experience for the players in our program. Whether you're in our program for one year or four years, we want you to look back and say, that really helped me. Mm-hmm. Sort of what I was saying before about priorities. If you're in the program for a year and you decide that football is no longer a priority, we want to have helped you make that decision, if that makes sense, of what right. you know where you're going next and what you want to do. So that's really what I, what I want for our program. Now, I want to see us perform better in games. I want to see us be more competitive on the field and, and those type of things. And that's what we're going to work on you know, day in and day out. It's sort of our overall goal. Obviously, we want to get to the point where we're competing for Centennial Conference Champions. We're competing for NCAA playoff posts and competing to make a long NCAA run. Will that happen this year? I don't know. You know, that's that's why you play the games. You never know when they're yeah. when those things are going to happen. But what we're going to do is we just want to go through the process. And I think if I have one thing that I really want our guys to, to, to do is I want them to bring energy, effort, and enthusiasm to every practice. And I want them to make sure that in each contest that they give their maximum at all times in that contest. And then we'll let the we'll let the scoreboard work itself out. 
first game is on Saturday, September the 7th, I believe, on the road, and then the first home game the following week on the 14th. So hopefully folks will come on out and, and, and watch the football game, and, you know, the band plays too. So, yep. Coach Kevin Burke, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. That's on target for this week. We'd like to thank Kevin Burke for being our featured guest today. We would also like to thank the staff of the Geddes Virgin and the executive board for WZBT for their ongoing support in this project. Please be sure to subscribe to On Target on TuneIn, Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. On Target is a joint production of the Geddes Virgin and WZBT. Our theme music was composed by Diego Rocha, a music major who just graduated from the Sunderman Conservatory of Music. Join us again in the fall. We hope you enjoyed this special summer edition of On Target. Have a great July.